According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Turn to Matthew chapter 8 this morning. As we get started, Matthew chapter 8, you see the scriptures on the board. We're going to remain, I think, in Matthew for most of our reading. We will bring in details from Mark and Luke. Uh, Mark 4, 35 through 41, as well as Luke 8, 22 through 25. But I believe for the most part we'll stick with our Matthew reading. Some of the vocabulary is a little bit different. For instance, in Luke, what we typically refer to as a sea, the Sea of Galilee, Luke refers to as a lake, uh, being a bit more worldly and having traveled and more of a, of course he's a Gentile, more of his geographical understanding is that's not a sea, it's a lake. And he calls it such in uh, in Luke 8. Anyway, we will uh, deal with those details here in a moment. But before we do any of that, it would do us no good to sit here in carnality. So let's take time for silent prayer. Make sure that we are equipped to handle the word of God. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and we Humble ourselves under its authority this morning. We ask for distractions to be set aside. We ask, Father, that you would open the eyes of our understanding, giving us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. We thank you for the truth of your word. And on this holiday weekend, we just thank you that it's a great time for family to be reunited and uh, for the fellowship to take place. And even in some cases, Father, as these holidays approach, uh, an opportunity to proclaim Christ to um, friends and family members, those that are still even now without Christ, without hope and without eternal life. So we commit to you all things that are done through this season, praying that as you open those doors of opportunity, we can be a, uh, a faithful witness to salvation through your son. Now, Father, on this time, uh, set aside distractions, give us concentration and bless our study. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Calming the Sea, one of the most famous episodes in the entire life of Christ, episode 28. Uh, if you have the overall harmony of the Gospels, we are about midway through the Galilean ministry at this point. The numbers will start back over again when we leave the Galilean ministry, moving on to uh, the Perean ministry and the last Judean ministry. But for now, the 28th episode of the Galilean ministry. I'll read from Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27 where um, the context is actually different from what we had studied here recently. You'll see more of the context, I think, fit in better in uh, both Mark and Luke. But we'll just pick it up with verse 23. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves, but Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And uh, that's really the... The crisis verse right there and their declaration is interesting. Uh, they have two things to say in this passage, that being the first, save us, we are perishing. And we'll, we'll deal with the vocabulary on that and the essence of what they mean. Then verse 26, he was saying to them, why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed. <laughs> What were they amazed for? Didn't, isn't this what they asked? Didn't they ask, save us? When you make requests, do you expect that they'll be answered? The men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? 
So two statements that they make, each one of them reflects an immaturity. Each one of them reflects a need to develop uh, more of a, uh, a growth, and we'll talk about that here in a moment. All right, let's flip over to Mark for the moment, Mark 4. These are largely identical, and, and it's only in the, in the minor details that you will glean uh, other things. But in Mark 4, you'll notice that uh, this event immediately follows after the parables. And since we've spent the last three Wednesdays detailing the parables of the kingdom, uh, I thought it was important that you notice both in the Mark and Luke context that uh, this event immediately follows those, those parables. It's not as easy to tell because in Matthew, where are the parables located? Matthew 13. In uh, Matthew, where is this walking? Or where is this calming the sea located? Matthew chapter eight, and so the the connection between those events is is lost to us in the Gospel of Matthew, as we said a number of times. If if you're frustrated by uh, the non sequential nature of Matthew, uh, first of all, you need to get over it, and then secondly, uh, don't ever try to read the book of Jeremiah. Because uh, Jeremiah is even worse than Matthew as far as presenting the material chapter by chapter in any kind of a sequence. You almost need a, a baseball scorecard to keep Jeremiah straight. So here in Mark 4, you'll note that the parables there, you've got the mustard seed. And, and uh, it says in verse 33, with many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as uh, they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. That's really a short way of summing up what Matthew takes a much longer way of teaching in a whole chapter, Matthew 13. Then in verse 35, on that day when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. So it's an immediate departure. Uh, this whole parable here, uh, the whole passage here where he's teaching them these parables is uh, he's teaching them from the boat. And uh, if you glance up to the first verse of chapter 4, that becomes clear. He began to teach again by the sea, and such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down, and the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. So that was his pulpit. That was his podium. He was actually in a boat just slightly offshore. The crowds were gathered there on the beach, and from the boat he was able to speak in uh, in a manner where all could hear, and uh, he presented those parables and taught them the lesson. And so when class is over, when evening comes, he's already in the boat. And he tells his disciples, all right, let's, let's get to the other side of this lake. And that's uh, what we deal with. All right, as we outline this, let's get a total of six points. And we're, I've titled the first one, Slipping Away. Slipping Away. Because that's exactly what he's doing. He's not even going to get out of the boat. He's not even going to go up on the beach where all these crowds are. He's completed his teaching. And he's going to give them the slip, as it were, by crossing to the other side. We observe this in, back to Matthew now, where, like I say, we're going to spend most of our time in Matthew. Uh, we observe this even prior to this paragraph, how the crowds were becoming distractions. Crowds and would-be followers were becoming distractions Obviously, something that's going to interfere with teaching, something that's going to interfere with your ministry, something that's going to uh, simply add unnecessary burdens is uh, a problem, and you want to keep those things to a minimum. We notice here in verse 18 of Matthew 8, 
Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Notice the crowds around him. Then a scribe came and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, was he short of um, legalists? <laughs> you know, most of these scribes were plunged into, you know, Pharisees were plunged into that. Uh, not necessarily this guy's problem. Um, but when he gives him this answer, like, yes, you can come or no, you can't come. He doesn't give him a straight answer. Look how he answers him. Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, that is a mysterious answer to the question of let me go with you. Our teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And it gives the, the point that, that he's not exactly rolling in the dough and things aren't prosperous and, and things aren't uh, successful. It's clearly it's not a purpose-driven type ministry going on here. And this scribe isn't going to like it. He's not going to enjoy it. And uh, I think it's interesting that he, uh, he peels away here and doesn't even follow. We don't see him again here in this context. Then verse 21, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. You get lots of people that want to serve. They want to help, but only when it's convenient, only when there's not other things going on and so forth. And, oh, we want to support your ministry, but obviously only on our uh, schedule. And uh, as long as it's not inconvenient for us, we'll be glad to uh, help you out and contribute here to your ministry. But Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. That interesting passage well actually we haven't taught this portion yet so that we do have that message coming up in our life of christ series so then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him and that leads us on into this event so you understand part of the motivation for slipping away is crowds like this the uh, the legalists that want to come and be all a part of what's going on and yet they're not going to enjoy the hardship of what's going on or these other crowds that uh, really want to be a part of it because it's the latest thing going it's a trend, and it's something uh, that's really a fatal flaw a lot of uh, American Christianity is caught up into is, well, what's the latest trend? Let's chase after this latest trend. And, and I'm not poking fun of, uh, of, of purpose-driven or anything, but I remember when, when that first came on the scene, and, and what did it replace? Well, anybody remember the Jabez stuff that was going around? And, and what did that replace? Anybody remember that? And, and uh, if you've been around long enough, I'm sure Pastor Schmidt can outline about 40 of these things that have taken place since the 60s. So uh, I imagine it goes back to the beginning of time. The nature of humanity. Let's chase after with the latest thing. Well, uh, the Lord didn't want any part of that. He says, let's, uh, let's cross over. Now, in going over to the other side, we uh, have maps down here that are available, and you won't necessarily need it here this morning. Uh, but take one with you as you go and use it for future studies. Or if you have, you might even have better maps in the back of your Bibles or what have you. That's fine. Uh, but if you don't have a good map of the Galilean region, we did print some off for you. And I think it's kind of important to at least get an idea. I had meant to, uh, let me get mine up here running so you can see it on the screen. I know I left it up here. question is, where did I hide it? There. Like that picture? That's my next church. I'm only joking. <laughs> All right. I'll put this up here on the screen so you have a chance to look at it. Life and Ministry of Jesus was the chapter I took it from. And uh, Galilee in the time of Jesus. There's a good map. We'll go with that one. 
I'll leave it like that. Now, crossing over to the other side is crossing over to the side of this uh, lake called Sea, the Sea of Galilee, the Galilean region being on the western shore. doesn't quite stretch all the way to the Mediterranean Sea because those Phoenicians are in the way. The, uh, the region of Tyre and Sidon never was conquered by Israel in, in Joshua's conquest or any subsequent time and uh, had always been a Canaanite presence on their, uh, on their border. So Galilee is that region that you see there that's shaded in uh, whatever color that is. Now, on the other side, you've got some other regions. Golanitis is up here on the top. Uh, Decapolis is down there towards the south. Decapolis even stretches across the River Jordan over here to the west a little bit and has uh, a little triangle of land there between Galilee and Samaria. Now, Golanitis and Decapolis, they were the regions to the east of the Sea of Galilee. And if, however much of this you want to put in your notes is fine. If you want to jot these down as subpoints, I did list them as subpoints. Uh, if you just simply want to listen to them, you can and follow along. Golanitis. When you think Gaul, what do you think when you think Gaul? Anything? Galatians, yeah. Galatians, the book of Galatians, absolutely. Uh, there actually was a land called Gaul, and people called Gauls. We, we pick fun of them a lot these days because they're known as France, right? Back then, it was Gaul. Caesar's Gallic Wars, that his diary, his chronicle of his, of his warfare there uh, in, in modern-day France. Well, these people actually settled in a lot of different places beyond France itself. They settled in Asia Minor in that region of Turkey, uh, the, the Galatian region that Paul would then write to in the New Testament in the book of Galatians. They settled here. They settled in a variety of, of locations. The thing to remember when you're reading your New Testament is that it, it is coming really as the culmination of what we've been studying in the book of Daniel, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And so we're, we're talking about a region that's been settled by a variety of races, ethnic groups, nationalities, and so forth. And so while we're talking about a Roman government, they are presiding over a mixture of Greek and uh, Persian and, and uh, Babylonian remnants and so forth. And so these regions aren't Jewish regions. In some cases, they're Greek regions. In some cases, they're Gaulish re uh, regions and so forth. Now, Galantis was ruled by Philip the Tetrarch from his capital of Caesarea Philippi. And uh, we made mention of this last week. We're, we're familiar with Herod for the most part because he was the the big king early when, when Christ was born, he's the one that murdered the Bethlehem babies and so forth. He was the, the one that Rome had put there on the throne that ruled over a, a tremendous region. Well, after he died, though, uh, Herod's kingdom was split up into four parts. That's why it's called a tetrarchy uh, from Tetris or from four. And so it was broken up into four parts and different uh, sons got different parts. Um, by the time of the ministry of Jesus Christ, 30 years later, uh, one of those parts isn't even a part anymore. It's now uh, directly ruled by a Roman governor, a Roman proconsul, which is what Pilate's doing there in, in the region around Jerusalem. Uh, but other regions were still governed by Herod's sons. The Galilean region governed by uh, another Herod. And this region over here governed by Philip from his capital of Caesarea Philippi. Back to the map again, you see Caesarea Philippi is right there, just to the north of the Sea of Galilee. Decapolis was a group of largely autonomous Greek cities, ten of them, 
It's where the deck comes from. Decapolis, a group of largely autonomous Greek cities administered by the Romans through the province of Syria. So you've got this region down here, this greenish region called Decapolis, and it's not really its own region. They're just a collection of, of independent city-states, very similar to how Greece itself was loosely organized for much of its history. And yet it was administered. The Romans let them basically do their own thing, but they had to answer to a governor. They didn't answer to the Judea governor. They didn't answer to Pilate. They answered to the Syrian governor, who was way up north in Damascus. The Syrian governor, who is clear off this map, just basically up there to the northeast. The nature of Decapolis. So he slipped away to the other side. Mark says, just as he was, meaning uh, right there in the boat, without leaving the boat, just as he was. Swift exit from Bible class. Mark 4.36, compare it back to Mark 4.1, meaning that he, his exit from the Bible class was swift and direct. Not sticking around, not talking to these uh, scribes that, that wanted, uh, wanted to join his group for the, for the fame of it. Not talking to the other folks who wanted to join his group but had other things to do first. Just wanting to get away, see. Probably it's a, a driving uh, idea behind a lot of pastors <laughs> in particular. You, you give a message and it just dies and no one listens and they're all asleep. They can't wait to the top of the hour anyway. So you just give up on it, close in prayer and slip out the fire exit. You know, that's a theory in any event. And here's what the Lord is doing. So when I have those moments, I feel, hey, it's not so bad. The Lord did it. I just don't have a boat. I could, I'll have to find other ways. Dig a tunnel or something from the pulpit. Got my own escape hatch. Now, so there's the first thing. Here's what the Lord's do, slipping away. Now, secondly, the second thing we want to examine here is the storm. The storm. Think about how many times storms are featured. Storms that aren't just natural storms, like in Jonah. I mean, you knew that wasn't a natural storm because the moment he was thrown in to the water, what happened to the storm? Well, it was over, right? Uh, other illustrations that are like that. Circumstances and details, the Father uses it as a test. He uses it as a condition during which faith is going to be tested, during which believers are going to have an opportunity to apply the word they've learned or to just simply plunge into some panic mode of humanity and act as if they're unbelievers without doctrine in the first place. That's the blessing we have. When you have the word of God, you can use it. You can function in life uh, on a different level than just the average unbeliever can handle things. So, let's look at this storm. First of all, it's called a great storm, a, a seismos, S-E-I-S-M-O-S, a seismos. is where we get all our English terms of, of seismic and seismology and so forth. An earthquake is a seismic event. We have other terms in the English that come from the Greek seismos or seismos. And it's not just any seismos, it's a seismos megas. Now, a seismos can actually take place in a variety of places. If it takes place on water, we would call it a storm, right? Or I guess the Japanese would call it a tsunami. <laughs> if it takes place on land, we call it an earthquake. What happens if it takes place across the universe? What would we call that? A universe quake? I don't know what you'd call it. You can't call it an earthquake because it's affecting more than just the earth. The sun is darkened. The moon becomes as blood. The, the stars fall to the earth, shaking as if uh, ripe figs from a fig tree. 
reason I'm taking the time to explain that is because we're going to have this coming up in our Revelation study. There's going to be a great seismos that actually does more than simply shaking the earth, but shakes the entire galaxy, so to speak, leaving, uh, uh, leaving the stars permanently altered from, uh, the view, from the human viewpoint of being on the earth at least. So a seismos. The boat was being covered by the waves. Here's some basic vocabulary for our first-year Greek class. Ployon, you have for boat. You'll see that several times in the Gospels. Uh, but kalupto is your verb. Kalupto, being covered. And that's the opposite of what we're studying with Revelation. Because Revelation is apokalupto. That is to uncover. It is so vital that we understand that people get all wrapped up around Revelation as if somehow it's, it's this deep, mysterious thing and you have to, you have to kind of unravel it and sift through it and find some code kind of thing. And that's not the, what it's designed to do. It, the book itself is an uncovering. The book itself is a revelation. We're promised to be blessed if we read it, if we study it. And so Revelation being an apocalypsis from uh, the opposite of this to uncover it's the direct opposite of what is happening here to this boat. The waves are actually covering the boat. All right? And that's not a good thing. <laughs> I don't care what kind of boat it is. If the waves are covering it, it's not a good thing. That's Matthew's description. Mark calls it a fierce gale of wind. And some of this, uh, the vocabulary is slightly different, as I say. They, they can form interesting word studies, lilops. L-A-I-L-A-P-S, lilops, I think is a kind of a boring word study, but it's an unusual word the way that it ends with the, with the C, lilops. But it's a fierce gale of wind, the kind of wind that does damage, the kind of wind that takes human life, the kind of wind that knocks buildings down. And uh, it's not doing good things for their boat there. The boat was filling up, the verb gemizo. Gamizo, filling up. And it's uh, normally, in a lot of ways, filling up is a good thing. Don't you want to be filled with the Spirit? You want to be filled with the fullness of God? You want to be filled with the knowledge of His will? Those are all your plerao verbs. This one, gamizo, is a, it's a different kind of filling, and it's not a good one. <laughs> this is a kind of filling that the water is supposed to be under the boat, outside the boat. The boat should be on the water, not the water in the boat. But in this case, the boat was filling up. Gamizo becomes an interesting study too. There are other things that fill up. You can fill up wrath. You can store up a measure of wrath or fill up a measure of wrath, which is another one of the applications that we'll be looking at in Revelation. So much of what we're doing here ties in. It's uh, kind of neat the way that these elements are, are coming together. Luke uses the same language when he calls it a fierce gale of wind. That, that vocabulary is identical with how Mark called it. But he adds another detail here that they began to be swamped. And, uh, and the aspect of danger. Danger. And uh, it's the last word that you see there on the screen. Ekindunuan. Danger. When you think about danger, this is the thing that really bugs me. They're in the boat with the Son of God. How much danger are they in? <laughs> what exactly is danger? Can you define danger? In some cases, maybe you can describe you can describe it as conditions. You can describe it as risk or or, or whatever. But 
Anytime you define danger, what you have to define it as is the risk that I'm coming to harm, that I've got a problem, that I might be killed or I might be hurt or I might lose something. And what it is, the only thing danger is, is is electricity dangerous? Oh, it can be. But, you know, I can turn the light on and off. I can do, this isn't dangerous, right? Is this dangerous? No. I suppose if I ripped the button off and I started yanking wires around and sticking my fingers down in there and maybe with a screwdriver or whatever, I could probably make it dangerous, right? What makes it dangerous? What makes anything dangerous? General Joe Phil's in Iraq right now. Does that mean he's in danger? Well, you're in church right now. Does that mean you're not in danger? Okay. What, what drives danger is the unknown is the idea that something might be about to happen and we don't know if it will. We don't know what it is. But if it does happen, we're not going to like it. (laughs) We're going to die. We're going to get hurt. We're going to lose something. And so because we have that fear about what's about to happen, if if, if you're Daniel in the lion's den, was he in danger? You would think if you're shoved into a pit, with a bunch of hungry lions, I'd, I'd say that's dangerous. But was he in danger? See, the whole thing that drives danger is the uncertainty. And, and we do it. It's part of our carnal human nature. If it's uncertain, let's just go ahead and assume the worst and get scared of that. <laughs> no reason to be afraid of the lions, Dan. Because God's angel was there and he closed the lion's mouth and, and uh, you never slept with a cat before? Just have a good night's sleep. A little bit larger cat, but you're okay. Might have kept him warm during the night, you know, curling up, cuddling up with the, with the fur and whatever. I, I might be reading into the text there a little bit, but we'll probably see it on video when we get to heaven. He you know, curled up with the lion and stayed warm and had a good time. He was in no danger. These disciples are in no danger. None whatsoever. Because the test was designed to communicate. It was designed to teach. It was designed to instruct. And they fail it. They fail their test of faith. Because they're submitting to the fear and they're, they're, they're panicking. And even though they fail the immediate test, they still get to learn lessons. And we'll see how that plays out here in a moment. So the idea about being in danger... As Luke records it, they began to be swamped and to be in danger. Well, in earthly terms, sure. A capsizing boat can be dangerous if, uh, if the winds are kicking up or the waves are rolling everywhere. You know, it's interesting because most of these guys are fishermen. Not all of them, but most of them. I, I can understand the tax collector being uncomfortable out here. But these fishermen, they've been in storms before. They've been in boats before. I, I can pretty much guarantee they probably swamped boats before. But they're scared. And so we'll demonstrate the failure to apply the word and, and what actually drives danger. If you have the relaxed mental attitude of occupying with Christ, living in the word, there's no such thing as danger. Because Joe Phil's not in danger. He's in Iraq. Of course he's in Iraq. But he's not in danger any more than you're in danger sitting here in church. 
because you're under the protection of God the Father. You've got a guardian angel. His, you're a part of his plan. He's in no more danger there than you are here. If, uh, if I start throwing out a little bit more convicting messages, you might even be in more danger sitting right here than he is over there. Just depends on how you define danger. So this is the aspect on the storm. So he's slipping away. The storm is storming away. And what's the Lord doing? He's sleeping. He's sleeping. Have you ever noticed? Think about a test and think about a person panicking like it's the end of the world. But another believer is as relaxed as you've ever seen. Cool as a cucumber. He's not sweating. He's relaxed. Sleeping. Has total peace. He's not losing any sleep over it. You're up all night long, you know, pulling your hair out, wondering, ooh, what about my bills? Who's going to pay this? Where am I going to get money for that? You're facing the same exact test they're facing, but they're sleeping like a baby. And you're all in turmoil. You're scared. you got all this danger going on. And... and <laughs> Does it anger you that they're so relaxed about it? Does it bother you at all? Shouldn't they be worried like you're worried? You have kind of the impression that not only were the not only were the disciples here in this chapter were they scared, we know they're worried, we know they're uh, uh, terrified, and they wake them up and they ask them, "Don't you care?" <laughs> Almost like his being asleep was an insult to them. They're going through this test. You need to pay attention to them. Take care of us. Well, again, we find a uh, we find a, uh, a commentary on their lack of faith, and he calls them little faith. You have little faith. Great vocabulary word there. Um, the neat the neat benefit is if you're lacking. There's a provision for that. If you're lacking wisdom, there's a provision for that. If you're lacking faith, there's a provision for that. If you're uh, lacking in love, there's a provision for that. Any lack, the provision is there. We just have to obtain it from the proper source. So he's sleeping. Stop to consider, how tired was he? He must have been exhausted to sleep through such a storm. Oh, we have we have no scripture and no reason to believe that uh, that Jesus Christ ever served in the military. But I got to tell you, every military person I ever met, including myself, but any any other military person I ever met, they've learned to sleep anywhere. <laughs> You've learned just doesn't matter what kind of noise is going on or turmoil or chaos around them or whatever. Just find a little corner. If it's noisy, that's why you have your earplugs. You know, they, they supposedly they issue you the earplugs so that you insert them as hearing protection when you're firing your weapon and you save your hearing longer. Um, usually in the in, in combat, you don't stop to take time to put in your hearing protection and, and fire your weapon. You just you're getting shot at. So you fire back. Uh, but the, the, the earplugs, though, are very beneficial when you need to catch them sleep. <laughs> you don't want the sergeant catching you or whatever. So you just 
plug your ears and you crawl in somewhere. I knew a man that slept under a generator, a 60 kilowatt generator. And it's fired up and pumping away and chugging away on diesel fuel and putting out electricity and making good old noise. And he's underneath the thing just sacked out, sleeping like anything, with his earplugs in, of course. Anyway, cold winter morning and uh, some of the exhaust from that generator was keeping him warm. It was a great place to sleep. I started feeling jealous. Wish I would have thought of it first. So now think about how exhausted he is. Here's this storm. Here's this storm, and um, and he's sleeping. Great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. You know, I, I can't imagine the, uh, the the spiritual battles he fought. I, I, I just can't. Uh, the, the, the depths of that, I, I try to picture it. Just based on my frame of reference as a pastor, based on spiritual conflict I've seen, physical exhaustion that, that creeps in because of spiritual exhaustion and so forth. We'll have some of those things coming up that we'll study in Second uh, uh, Corinthians where Paul talks about the, uh, the uh, things that overwhelm him in the ministry. And it's not the shipwrecks, and it's not being beaten, and it's not, it's not uh, the, the days and nights without food, and it's not those other things. It's the spiritual concern for the churches. And he says in 2 Corinthians, he says, that's what wears me out, is, that, is the spiritual concern for the churches. And, and that's Paul describing a responsibility as an apostle where he had multiple local churches under his authority. That itself boggles my mind, but then take it to the next level, show what, what was Jesus Christ dealing with. As the Lamb of God sent into the world, as the light of God sent to teach, being rejected by his own people, turning to parables, starting to prepare his disciples for the cross, and how uh, when, he, when he got through with a full day of teaching, how drained he must have been to say, go ahead and just set this boat headed east and wake me up when we get there. And he falls asleep. So much so that, that the storm... Don't even wake up with a storm. We uh, previously touched on that when he was sitting by the well in John chapter 4. The disciples went in to buy food in a Samaritan village where they were going to pay probably five times market rate because they were Jews buying from Samaritans. They go into the village to buy food, but he's exhausted sitting there at the well. And even though he's exhausted, he's got more work to do because here comes this woman that needs Christ. So we've touched on it. We'll touch on it some more. There's many times throughout his ministry where he is just exhausted. His time was in such short supply that he caught naps whenever and wherever he could. There's a second thing you can glean out of this. Not only is he exhausted, but you sleep when you can. When you can, where you can. Because there's not a whole lot of time. Undoubtedly, there's going to be more work to do when he gets to the other side. Sure enough, more spiritual warfare. There's a demoniac over there hanging out in cemeteries. And, uh, and he's, he's uh, violent and people can't deal with it. Christ is going to have to cast out that demon or those demons, multiple, because uh, there's more than the one demoniac that's there. Are we considering, and this is something that I uh, learned from uh, older pastors and, and Ralph and other guys that, that uh, want to make sure, you know, are you getting your rest? Are you getting your sleep? Are you... 
keeping track of your health. And when was the last time you went to a doctor and had your kidneys looked at and things like that? Because uh, a lot of times there's just no time. When, uh, when are you going to do those kind of things? All right, slipping away, storming away, sleeping away. And then they cry out, save us. They cry out here, save us. <laughs> save us. You know, isn't that why he's here? Isn't that why he emptied himself? Isn't that why the word became flesh? It's kind of the whole point to why he's not still seated in the Father's glory. He came to save. And it's remarkable, they seem to have forgotten who he is and why he's here. And even their their cry for help becomes, in the irony of it all, becomes convicting. Because the very thing they're demanding of him is exactly what he has come to do. And beyond just simply saving their pitiful human life from a storm at sea, he's come to redeem their souls for all eternity. Which one's more important? (laughs) And since he has to do the one, you think he's going to fail at this little thing? See, if they thought it through, they would know they are in no danger whatsoever. Because God the Father cannot permit the Christ to drown in this sea. God the Son has to go to the cross. He's, he's, he's invincible at this point. He, he cannot drown. There's no way he's going to die on this day, on this lake, in this boat. God the Father will not allow that, will not permit that, because the day of his death is determined and has been since the foundation of the world. He is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. He will go to the cross on Friday, April 3rd, 33 A.D. And cannot die one hour prior to that. Now, you and I, (laughs) we don't have the advantage of knowing the moment of our death. Which is a good thing. He did. He knew he was the Passover lamb. He knew he was going to die on Passover. He knew the moment of his death. He knew who was betraying him. And called him friend anyway. He knew those things ahead of time. We don't. But even though we don't know when that day is, call it, uh, give it whatever nickname you want, the day of your death. All right? Even though you don't know when it is, God does. And so, what kind of perspective does that put on danger? See, when I went to Desert Storm, big deal. Am I going to die? Maybe. If, if, if the day of my death is coming up, then yes, I'm going to die. And there's nothing I can do about it. But if the day of my death is not coming up anytime soon, then I can't die. I can't die because I have a destiny that the Father has already charted out. My days have been numbered before there was even one of them. And so even though I don't know what it is, He does. And until that day comes, I'm immortal. Invincible. I will not die. Not one day soon. And these disciples, you can, it's one thing to understand that in general terms, and we should all have that frame, frame of mind, but he could go beyond that because he knows the day he's going to die. Can you imagine? We have birth certificates. Could you imagine being issued a death certificate? 
And you know, okay, I say I was born on this day and this year, uh, and my death is coming up on this day and this year. So the reason why we're not privy to that kind of information is because, again, we're carnal, we're human, we're lazy, and we would, we would put things off. <laughs> right? You know it. I've told you many times, I, I, I'm the worst one in this church. I've got a horrible procrastination problem. I intend to do something about it someday. There was a man I went to Desert Storm with, and uh, we talked about things of the Lord. We talked about salvation, and he I didn't want any part of it. He said, I'll get religious when I get older. Figured he had plenty of time. He said, I'll worry about that later. Because he was 18, he was young, he was chasing girls, he was a handsome guy. Girls were, you know, I mean, it's one thing to chase girls, but he was catching them. He was attractive, and, and they liked him, and he was having a whole lot of fun. And he knew that if he believed in that Bible thing and, and started doing that Christian thing, that, you know, his promiscuity had to, had to stop, and he didn't want to do that. So he said, I'll get, I'll get religious when I get older. And he didn't get older. He died on my birthday. He was killed in a, in a, in a truck accident. His uh, Humvee hit a deuce and a half head on, and Humvees don't win those kind of things. He died. Never got older. So you, you can't uh, procrastinate or act like you've got all this time because we have today, and then we weren't even promised that. So when they, when they say save us, the titles are interesting. Lord, teacher, master, master. In Matthew, they call him Kyrios. In Mark, they call him Didaskalos. In Luke, he's called Epistates. Master, Master. And none of those are contradictory, obviously. They're all his titles. There's 12 guys in the boat that could have called him 12 different things. Matthew, of all these authors, Matthew was the only one that was even in the boat. He recorded the term Kyrios, Lord. Mark wasn't in the boat, but he probably learned from Peter, who was in the boat calling out Didaskalos. Luke wasn't in the boat either, but he learned from eyewitnesses as well when he conducted his Galilean interviews. It's good to have different titles for the Lord. It's good to know different names. The ladies that are going through the names of God, like Jehovah Jireh and, and Jehovah uh, Tzidkenu and Jehovah Rapha and all these other terms, it's good to learn those. Because the more you learn, the more about Him you know. The more appreciation you have. What's the difference between Adonai and El Shaddai? It's good to learn those things. Because they're all his titles. In fact, if they knew him better, they wouldn't be scared in this storm. So they issue the imperative of Sozo. They say, save us. Aorist imperative. The form as it appears in the text is Soson. But it comes from Sozo. The Greek class hates sozo. I don't know why. It just takes some bizarre forms on occasion that uh, they, they laugh at. That was not so bizarre. Your Z became an S in your aorist imperative. Soson. Save us. And we understand the, the concepts of salvation, not only eternal but temporal, not only from sin but also from earthly dangers. There's lots of applications of save us, and this is what they want. Save us physically. Save our physical lives. Well, isn't that a misplaced priority? <laughs> the real salvation is uh, yet to be accomplished on the cross. We are perishing. 
Now, apolumi is a fun word study because this also is tied in with John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not, apolumi, should not perish. We are perishing. What a hopeless way to consider death. Because for the regenerate, death is not perishing. It's promotion. It's only the unregenerate that perishes when the soul departs the body. But if you believe in Jesus Christ, you don't perish. You might physically die, but you don't perish. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish. You might physically die, but you will never perish if you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. So when they say we are perishing, it is a hopeless declaration or a faithless statement of fear that's putting uh, far more credit to the physical life than, uh, than needs to be there. Both Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of them, reference the term apolumi there for perishing. And then Mark adds this detail, don't you care? Don't you care? You know, that, you know how immature that is, how childish that is, how selfish that is. When you're all wrapped up in don't you care, you're communicating the fact that in your mind, you're the center of the universe. And it bothers you that that other person isn't holding you up to that same level. We looked at this in our study on caring from 1 Corinthians. Martha was in the kitchen, slaving away, washing dishes. Mary was goofing off, sitting out there listening to Bible class. And Martha comes storming on out and corners the Lord and says, Don't you care? My sister has left me to do all the dishes by myself. Don't you care? The same language, same word. Don't you care? Now, he does care. And he cares enough to have the right priorities. He doesn't miscare like you and I do when we get our priorities turned around and we start caring for the wrong thing. When you're caring for the wrong thing, then you're not caring for the right thing and you're misdirected as we've studied that whole series on caring. We'll come back to that series tonight. Of course he cares. In fact, he came into this world in order to save those who are perishing, John 3.16. Of course he cares. It's, it's, it's ludicrous, this question. But it communicates their struggle, their lack of faith, their immaturity. When you really ask a question that stupid, <laughs> and you stop to think it through, then uh, usually if you have any kind of uh, humility, you can kind of hang your head and learn from it and say, okay, that was a stupid question, I'll, I'll get over it. I shouldn't have asked it, now I know. Of course he cares. What kind of question is that? It's like uh, accusing your parents of not loving you. You don't love me. Just because I spanked you, is that it? No, I spanked you because I love you. It's proof that I do love you. How can you say I don't love you? All right, then he silenced the storm under point five. And I asked the question last week, I wanted you to think about this. How many storms were there? I mean, the obvious one was the physical storm with the waves and the wind and the boat going under. But there was more than that because there were actually 12 beyond that. There were disciples who had their own storms going on in their soul, in their thinking. So when he says, peace be still, who's he talking to? 
The waves? Or them? <laughs> They're all in this dither and, and crying and moaning and oh, help us, save us, don't you care? So when he says, peace be still, I'm wondering who he's talking to. Well, obviously he silenced it all. The disciples' tempest. Tempest, T-E-M-P-E-S-T, misspelled on the screen. The disciples' tempest, they had their own storm going on. And you have to identify with that. You have to at least acknowledge that it's there. And hopefully provide the teaching, provide the encouragement, provide the rebuke if necessary. Just settle down. Just settle down. You certainly don't want to let it just rage. Because that gets destructive. And what brought about this storm? Little or no faith. Little or absent faith had left the disciples afraid. Failure to fear the Lord led to carnal fear. We use the same fear in both senses. The positive sense where you have reverence, where you fear the Lord. And then the negative sense where you're afraid, you're scared. The danger has left you scared. Little or absent faith. And he calls them, O you of little faith. <laughs> Became my favorite verse once upon a time. In high school, my friend and I would play one-on-one -on -one basketball, and I became known as, O you of little talent. <laughs> so, and it was a play on words from this very passage right here. Good thing was, was that he was a Christian, had a perspective to uh, appreciate the biblical Illusion behind the insult. Got to settle that fear. Now it's interesting that there's a way to do it, and he does it here with this rebuke. Why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? When you ask that question, why are you afraid? Is there a good answer for that? <laughs> there really isn't. How are they going to answer? Well, Jesus, we're afraid because uh, we're not applying doctrine and uh, we're selfish, and, um, you know, if, if they try to put an answer into words, all they can do is just simply confess and admit their, their, their failure in this, in this task. And so by rebuking them the way that he rebukes them, by asking this unanswerable question, why are you afraid, and by calling them this name, now is this insulting? When he says, you men of little faith, is it wrong to insult somebody? Is it insulting? We teach our children, we say, don't, don't, uh, don't call names. This is what Sharon really gets worked up about. She, because we teach our children, don't call names, don't call other people names. And then we come to Bible class and here's the Lord calling them names. <laughs> and he's not sinning. This is sanctified name calling. Right? If the shoe fits, you of little faith. And the only reason why that's insulting is because they should have more faith. They should be walking in faith. We're supposed to walk by faith, not by sight. And so, yes, it's an insult, but it doesn't have to be an insult. Or in other words, they don't have to be in the condition that produces the insult. That's why it stings, because it's true. The truth does hurt. So, this is the rebuke, and this is what you have to do. We're told to admonish the unruly. 
to encourage the faint-hearted, to build up the weak, and to be patient with all men. There is a point, though, where a rebuke becomes necessary, and if you fail to rebuke, you're not, you're not helping them, and you're not showing love, and you're not being faithful in your ministry. And so uh, just as he, he had no choice, he had to rebuke them here, just like he had to speak in parables uh, earlier in the day. This is being faithful in his ministry. So that was their storm. Of course, there was the weather condition. But you'll notice how quickly that storm ended. The circumstantial conditions for the test were brought to an end. Why? The test was over. The circumstantial conditions for the failed test were brought to an end. You know, I think we we miss the prayers a lot with health tests by praying for healing as our first thought in the prayer. But that test itself is the circumstantial condition under which faith is being tested. My brother-in-law with his cancer, for example. Do I want him to be healed? Of course. However, there's a reason why he has been assigned the stage four colorectal cancer. There's a reason why. And given that these are the conditions he's been placed under, this, these are the circumstantial conditions under which his faith is being tested. And his wife's, my sister's faith is being tested. And our whole family's being tested. At whatever point we, we connect to that person, we have an application to make in this test. And so, by praying for healing, by praying, you know, take this test away, We're praying, in effect, that we want those circumstantial conditions to be removed. What are we really saying? We don't want our faith to be tested under these conditions? There's a purpose for our faith being tested. There are lessons we need to learn. There are lessons Byron needs to learn. And he's going to learn them. But he's going to learn them through this test. And it might be that these are his final lessons to learn because this might be the testing of his faith, be faithful until death. This could be the the dying grace testing circumstances that he's placed under, that my sister's placed under, and so forth. And so the, the prayer to just, well, remove the test, take away my problems, is that a prayer consistent with his will? Because it was his will to give you the test. So if it's his will to give you the test and you say take it away, on its very surface, you're not praying it according to his will. <coughs> the, test will run, the test will end. We know it will end because every test is provided an ecbasis. It's provided a way of escape. It's provided a victorious conclusion. He told the church of Smyrna, you'll be tested ten days. Be faithful until death. The significance of that ten days isn't so much in the number ten itself, but is the fact that there is a number a number does exist. The duration of this test has a, is of, of, of a finite period of time. And so, rather than pray for the test to go away, pray that I will learn the lessons that this test is supposed to teach me. That I will grow to the levels that this test is supposed to pr- uh, promote. And then, of course, yes, <laughs> once it's accomplished, you better believe it. Once I've learned every lesson I'm supposed to learn, And once I've obtained all the growth I'm going to obtain, and once there's no more reason for this test still being here, okay, yes, now 
bring it to its conclusion because it's done its work. It's done its work. Notice how quickly the storm ended here. Test was over. You failed. Notice how quickly the storm ended when Jonah was tossed overboard. It's the nature of these circumstantial conditions. We're also left to wonder, were these natural winds or spirit beings? Could have been either, could have been both. Psalm 104.4, his angels are winds. I'm going to have to wrap up with this. But just by way of thinking, what uh, meteorologists will call weather phenomena may not be weather phenomena. Psalm 104 in verse 4. He makes the winds his messengers, flaming fire his ministers. So when a hurricane sweeps through the Gulf Coast like Katrina did, was that an atmospheric phenomena of nature? Or was it an angelic being? I can imagine. We'll probably find out when we get to heaven. We'll find out that Katrina was really uh, Gabriel or some other angel. Okay? A mighty, mighty archangel named, uh, you know, whatever, who felt rather insulted because we named him Katrina. <laughs> right? And we put these, you know, these girly names on, on these hurricanes. But what if, they're, what if they already have names? Because they're servants of the Lord. Or these fires, ministers or fire, flaming fire, his ministers. Talk about the wildfire sweeping through in Arizona or California or Montana or somewhere. What if those aren't natural weather phenomena either? What if those are angels? Designed to wake up a nation that uh, has by and large departed from the word of God. So we leave that as a possibility. And then I would let you ponder for the next week. When he says, peace be still, and he ends the storm, did that come from his divine authority as God the Son? Was that just God the Son, the creator of the universe, commanding the weather? Did it come as messianic authority? Being the Christ, being a spirit-ordained uh, prophet, like uh, you know Moses parting the sea, or Elijah stopping the rain, or other... other uh, Weather-related phenomena that, that uh, Old Testament prophets could be utilized in uh, changing. Or was it even Adamic authority? He is the last Adam. He is, or the second Adam, depending on which passage you're reading. He is, in his humanity, sinless and perfect. Adam was given dominion over this earth. Adam was given dominion over, he named the animals. He was given mastery over the things of this earth. Was this Adamic authority? Sinless, perfect Adamic authority? What was going on here? And I'll just leave that as a question because uh, I don't have the answer either. It's just something we want to ponder and, and consider. I do know, though, that he laid aside his privileges. I do know, though, that when he walked this walk, he deliberately set aside his rights in deity. So I, I can actually rule out that first one of divine authority. I don't believe he ever used divine authority. I don't believe ever once did he ever use omniscience, omnipotence, or any other aspect of, of his essence. Because the moment he did that, then uh, he failed to identify with me. And he identified with me. He took my place on the cross. He became my substitute. And if he, uh, 
if he uh, you know, took some shortcuts and used omniscience here and there and used omnipotence here and there and did some other things like that, well, I can't do that stuff. So he didn't identify with me. I don't believe he used divine authority ever. And uh, But filled with the Holy Spirit, ministering under the Holy Spirit, I can do that. And so uh, such as such, he maintains the identification. All right, the last thing, and we'll... we'll Wrap it up next week and then move on to the, the uh, Gadarene demon. Uh, but there was success, and I'm calling it surprising success. But I don't want to, we're over time now, and we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up. Why were they so surprised? Why? When he succeeded and they were saved, isn't that what they asked for? And so, and yet they're stunned. It's like you ask for something in prayer, and then it happens, and you're like, <gasps> well, were you skeptical when you were making that prayer request? Why, why are you so amazed that prayers are being answered? And we'll deal with that as well. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for this study. I pray, Father, that the blessing of this message would continue to bear fruit as it is implanted within our souls, as it dwells richly. And, Father, as it springs forth to bear fruit, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Father, the, uh, the parable stops there, but I won't. Uh, let, let this fruit bear a thousandfold, a millionfold, whatever you want to do. Father, glorify your Son through us according to your good pleasure. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.